As we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, we've been discovering it is not a start-to-finish sequence of events. Um, It describes the same events several times in different ways. And as I said over the last couple of weeks, Philip Jensen uses the analogy of the instant replay that we have at our sporting events, and I reckon that's a really good analogy. Uh, In footy, somebody makes a spectacular try, and when they show it on the TV, we don't only see it once. We see it four, five, six times from different angles. Each time we're seeing something different, but it's recording the one event. We're just seeing it from a different perspective. And that's pretty much what we have in the book of Revelation. So the seven seals gave us a brief overview of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. The seven trumpets tell us in more detail about the judgment that's coming upon the world and it focuses on the impact that it's going to have on the ungodly. Between trumpets six and seven, which was last week, we had another camera angle. Uh, This time it focused on the Christians. What are the Christians doing while the wrath of God is getting poured out on the world? And what were God's faithful witnesses doing? Well, they were witnessing, of course. They They were preaching. They were calling the world to repentance. And the world hated it. And so God's faithful witnesses were being martyred. And now we get a different camera angle again. This time, the camera focuses in on the spiritual battle. What lies behind the hatred that the world has towards God's faithful witnesses? So let's read it. Um, Today we're reading Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon has poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even though we are your children, and even though we are children of the Spirit, sometimes we find it so terribly difficult to try and understand what you are saying to us in some of these passages. Here where we're given these images of what's going on in this spiritual battle in heaven, it, all these images can just seem so distant to us and we can just throw our hands up in despair and say, Lord, we don't know what this means. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us today. Lord, today we give to you our minds as well as our hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us and that you would show us what is to take place. In Jesus' name, amen. I reckon I need to begin today's message by saying, if you don't believe that the devil is real and that Satan is a very real personal being, you're going to have great difficulty with not only the book of Revelation, but with the Gospels themselves because, and with the person and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus not only taught about the presence of evil, he taught about the presence of this evil one, this, this person of evil, the devil. And, and he also demonstrated the battle against and the victory over Satan. Yeah, sometimes the popular image that we have of, of this Satan character revolves around comical caricatures. You know, we have this man in a red suit with a pointy arrow tail and, and a pitchfork in his hand, and he's never something which we are to take too seriously. But there's nothing comical about Satan. He's called the devil. Now, devil, the word devil, literally means slanderer. Some of the most evil, diabolical work that the devil achieves is to slander God and to slander God's children. That means to speak untruths about God or to spread untruths about God's children. And that's why gossip is such a heinous sin, uh, particularly if the gossip is not true or if it's only partially true or if it's only a suspicion. Slander is a tool of the devil. It's what he does. And the lives of many Christians and the work of many churches has been destroyed by slander, lies. So Satan is the slanderer. He is the deceiver. He is the accuser. There's lots of names for him. And he accuses the saints of God by day and night before our God. That's what he did with Job. 
And here's a classic example of the way he accuses and the way he slanders. Now, God, you know the story of Job? God said, do you see my servant Job? He fears me and he always does what's right. And Satan says, well, he wouldn't be so loyal to you if everything wasn't going so well for him. It's only because you won't let anything bad happen to him that he loves you. And all right, so Satan accuses Job and he questions Job's motivation for his faithfulness. But of course, if you know the story of Job, Job continued to do what was right and Job continued to fear God. Even when he'd lost everything, his possessions, his family, his health, even when he's lying in the dust, scraping his scabby, pussy sores with a broken piece of pottery, he continues to fear God and he continued to do what was right. And so Satan is the accuser. And he accuses us before God. He accuses Christians before God. That Michael Brumpton, he'll never be any good. You know, he's got too much pride. He's, got, he's too selfish. He's got, you know, he'll never be any good. Or that little church there, meeting there in that school hall, that, that Bush Disciples mob. Who do they think they are? They're, they're not doing God's work. They're just separating themselves off from everybody else. They're insignificant. They'll crumble. Satan accuses us before God's throne. And sadly, slander and accusations against God's people very often emerge from within a fellowship. All we have to do is read some of Paul's letters where he's addressing that very issue where people within the church slander others of God's children, accusing them of things that are not true or accusing them of things that are only partially true. By the way, do you know another name for a partial truth? A lie, an untruth. And you know who's really good at partial truths? The devil. He does it all the time. And yet, in God's eyes, what power, what real power does slander or accusations have anymore? Because the blood of Jesus takes away all of our sins. Which part of our sin does the blood of Jesus not take away? When someone repents and asks forgiveness of God, they are forgiven totally, completely. There is no point to making an accusation against one of God's repentant, faithful children. Because in God's eyes, they are pure. They are holy. They are righteous. And that's the only reason why I can be here today sharing the word of God with you. Because in God's eyes, I'm pure, holy and righteous. And that's the only reason why you can come before God today is because as you repent of your sin and as you confess and and ask, Lord, forgive me, He washes you with the blood of the Lamb and you are pure and holy and righteous. And so accusations, slander have no part, they have no effect. And if there were, and there would be a lot more love, a lot more unity and a lot more grace shown in the church if we fully understood the potency of the purifying power of Jesus' blood. 
It is so powerful. It is so strong. But we'll come to that a bit later. Chapter 12 begins with a great sign appearing in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and she's crying out with birth pains and the agony of birth. Who is this woman? Does she represent the church? Does she represent Israel? Is it Eve? Or as our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters believe, is she Mary? Who is she? In Genesis chapter 37, in Joseph's dream, the sun and the moon represent Jacob and his wife, and the stars represent his children, the tribes of Israel. And so this image, with this image, we are meant to identify the woman with Israel. And of course, the child that she gave birth to is obviously Jesus, because he's described as the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, which is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, which is talking about Jesus. And so the woman represents Israel. And of course, Jesus was born as a child of Israel. It was his lineage. It was his heritage. He was born into the line of David, into the tribe of Judah. But later on, all right, so we have the woman here representing Israel. But later on, the woman is obviously representing the church because she has other offspring. And the dragon goes off to make war against her other offspring. And here her offspring are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it's describing Christians, the church. And so the woman represents spiritual Israel. She represents the community of God's faithful people. Out of this community was born Jesus Christ. And this community continues today and is now, she is now representing the faithful disciples of Jesus. The next sign that appears is a great red dragon. I don't think too many people have too much trouble identifying who that might represent. Um, not only because the image is very clear, but because we're told who it is. It's Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the accuser. His seven heads, each with a royal crown, means he is the ruler of the earth. The ten horns means he's very powerful. You know, when Satan tempted Jesus and he took him up onto the high mountain and he showed him all of the, the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and he said to him, all these kingdoms I give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, was that true? Could Satan actually do that? Could Satan give Jesus those temples? Well, th sorry, those kingdoms. Well, yes, Satan currently is the ruler of this world but not for long. That's all going to change. The dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, most people agree this most probably is an image of fallen angels, Satan's demons. And something I haven't said already, and I probably should have, is quite often the book of Revelation will mention one-third. Now, does that mean that exactly 33.333% um, of the total angels are here, are here um, swept down? Um, well, 
it may represent a literal one-third, but as most numbers in the Revelation are highly symbolic, one-third likely represents a significant minority. All right? So it's a significant number, a significant proportion, but it's in the minority. So the Bible seems to indicate that Satan and his demons, which are fallen angels, uh, they are angels who rebelled against God, and their number, well, we're not given their number, but it is a significant proportion, but it is a minority. And so we should never be afraid of Satan or his demons, because although they're strong, the Lord our God and his heavenly armies are far, far, far stronger. And the only power that they wield is the power that God allows them. And so we shouldn't be afraid of them. And yet here's something that does sound pretty scary. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but a child was caught up to God and to his throne. The devil did everything that he could to kill Jesus to, and everything that he could to disrupt Jesus' mission on the earth. What evil could a king, King Herod, what, what evil could cause such a king to slaughter every baby, every baby boy under the age of two in the town and the region of Bethlehem? Could a human be so paranoid and so worried that an unknown baby born to peasants would rise up to steal his throne? What would motivate a king to do that? Who is behind that attempt to kill Jesus? Satan. A number of times people sought to take hold of Jesus to kill him, but it wasn't yet time. Who was behind those attempts on Jesus' life? Satan. In three different ways, the devil tried to tempt Jesus and turn him from his God-given mission, but he failed. And then there was a fourth time when Peter said to, said to Jesus, oh, I won't let it happen, I won't let it happen. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Who was behind these attempts to take Jesus from his destiny and God's plan? Satan. He tried to devour the child, but the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, I think we've got something important to learn here about the protection of God. The whole life and ministry of Jesus here is summed up with he was born and he was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, we've had some pretty short gospels, but that's, that's the shortest of them all. And yet we know that he suffered and, we do and he died, don't we? And of course we know that. And of course we know this is very important. But where is Jesus now? He ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And here's the lesson. The salvation of God is not necessarily protection from death. It's resurrection from the dead. It's being taken up to heaven and being with God in his glory. We've seen this in chapter 6. We've seen it again in chapter 11, 
where God's faithful are killed and then they're taken straight to the glory of God. And this should not be seen as a failure of God's protection, nor should it be seen as, as God's plan and purpose being thwarted. This is exactly God's plan. This is exactly God's purpose, that his faithful disciples will be witnesses for him even unto death. And when this happens, they're taken straight to glory. These are the overcomers. And we'll see this a bit later. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Last week we heard that number a fair bit, didn't we? Three and a half years, uh, 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times and half a time. It's the same period of time, three and a half years. If seven years represents a complete time, three and a half years means it's a time cut short. It is a definite period of time, but it is a time that will come to an end. Now, it may be a literal 1,260 days, but I don't think we should be surprised if it gets to 1,261 and, oh, it hasn't happened. It is signifying that a time is cut short. But what does it mean that the woman fled into the wilderness? Does this mean that the church is running scared out into the desert? Of course not. Biblically, the wilderness is a place of ever-present danger. It's a place of lawlessness. It's a place where bandits and marauding armies and wild animals can strike with impu impunity, right? Nobody's going to stop them. But the wilderness, for God's people, is always a place of God's provision and God's protection. It's a place where his faithful come into the very presence of God. The wilderness for God's faithful is a place of prayer and meditation and drawing near to God. It's a place where God speaks to his people. So what's the image? Well, the church may be in the world. It may be in a place of danger. But by faith, we know that the Lord is with us and that the Lord provides you know, and sometimes we may feel that, oh, I'm in the wilderness and what's going on? Where is God? Well, guess right, what? He, he's right there with us. He's right there protecting us. He's right there providing for us. He's right there communing with us. And we draw near to God as he draws near to us. Verse 7. In verse 7, we see a war happening in heaven if your view of heaven is laying back peacefully resting on a nice bouncy cloud well your image is probably going to be shattered by verse 7 because there is a war in heaven Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and that's why that Ephesians reading then goes on to describe that that's why we need to put on the armour of God. And of course, if you read the description of the armour of God, there's nothing mysterious or mystical about it. It's, it's how we live. It's living as a Christian, 
should be living. It, it, it's to, put, to put on the armour of God is to live in righteousness and obedience as Jesus' faithful disciples. And so putting on a belt of truth means we always tell the truth. Um, having a breastplate of righteousness means two things. Jesus has given us his righteousness. We have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. It also means that we should be living righteous lives. Shoes of readiness for the gospel means that we've got to always be ready to tell people about Jesus. The shield of faith means that we stand strong in the faith and know that the devil and all of his attacks that come against us can have no effect on us. The helmet of salvation means that we always trust in, G trust in the salvation that God has given us. It means we repent of our sin and it means that we're forgiven. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, means we take in the Word of God and we speak out the Word of God. Right? There's, there's nothing mysterious or mystical about heavenly armour. So there is a war in heaven, which, by the way, is also foretold in Daniel chapter 12. Isn't it interesting? We're in Revelation chapter 12 and we're told about exactly the same thing in Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Who is this Michael? No, it's not me. So if you think I'm the one that's going to kick Satan out of heaven, sorry. My, my parents, they named me Michael because I was so angelic. Because that's what Michael means. At that stage, they'd known me for a whole minute. Um, they probably would have named me something else if they'd taken time to get to know me. Um, although Robin, she still calls me Michael and she's known me for a while. Maybe I am angelic. Michael is the chief angel, the archangel. He is the angel who fights in the protection of God's people. And here in Revelation chapter 12, Michael and his angels are fighting against Satan. But spoiler alert, although Satan and his demons fought back, Satan was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, when did this happen? Has it happened yet? That's a question you're wanting to know, Schultze. <laughs> when did it happen? Has it happened yet? Well, you'll be pleased to know I do have an answer for you, Schultze. I don't know. <laughs> A logical answer could be Satan was defeated and thrown out of heaven when Jesus was raised from the dead. That could be a logical answer. Another logical answer, which has a fair bit of experience that goes along with it, could be no, it hasn't happened yet, because both Daniel and the Revelation both describe a terrible time of persecution and torment for God's people, such as has never been. 
And so my official answer today has to be, I don't know if Satan has yet been cast out of heaven or not. But the Bible does speak so categorically that he has that we can be sure that if it hasn't happened yet, that it will happen. Because sometimes it talks about things that are going to happen as if they have happened because we can be so jolly sure that it will happen. But I suspect that it hasn't happened yet. And I'll give you three reasons why. Firstly, it was after the resurrection that Paul told us about the spiritual battle in heavenly places. But of course, that could just mean in the spiritual realm, not just actually in heaven itself, in the place where God is. Um, secondly, I don't believe we are yet seeing the terrible persecution that will come at the end of time. There is definitely going to be an increase in Satan's destructive activity, such as has never before been seen. And I don't believe we're seeing that yet. We catch little glimpses of it, but we have been catching little glimpses of it right throughout history. But here's the third reason. The third reason why I don't think it happened at, at the resurrection of Jesus is because we're told that disciples of Jesus have a part to play in Satan's defeat in heaven. How was Satan defeated? If this spiritual battle is what's happening spiritually, Michael and his angels fighting against Satan and his demons, if that's what's happening spiritually, what's happening physically? And it might surprise you to find that you have a part to play in conquering Satan. How do we conquer Satan? Prayer? Yeah. But that's not the answer that we're given in today's reading. Brothers, Christians, are those who are getting accused by Satan and they have conquered him, one, by the blood of the Lamb and two, by the word of their testimony. They conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus died for us. What accusation can stand when we repent of our sin and ask for forgiveness, we are forgiven. Such is the potency and the power of the blood of the Lamb. Satan has no power over us. His accusations are meaningless. Unless, of course, we don't repent. But the faithful do repent. And we conquer Satan by the word of our testimony. We conquer Satan by witnessing unto death. The, the devil battles against our bodies, but he cannot hurt our souls. He's already lost the battle for our souls. That, that, that's what the triumph of the cross is all about. And every time we have an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ, and we're a little bit undecided, this is the spiritual battle. Michael and his angels are battling in heaven for us to be faithful witnesses. And Satan and his demons are battling for us to capitulate, to wimp out, to go underground, to be a secret Christian and not tell anybody about Jesus Christ. Do you know that the persecutions against the early church 
actually made the church grow. Christians had to flee, you see. They had to flee Jerusalem. They had to flee Rome. They had to flee the Jews. They had to flee the pagans. And every time they moved, what did they do? They packed something up and they took it with them. What did they take with them? The gospel. They took it with them wherever they went. They'd take it to another town and then they'd be persecuted and they'd have to flee that town. What would they take with them? The gospel. And they shared the gospel wherever they went and it spread right across the known world faster than it would have ever done if there hadn't have been persecution. And so every moment God's faithful disciples are covered by the righteous, gracious forgiveness that comes by the blood of the Lamb. And every time we recognise the power of the blood of the Lamb in others. And every time God's faithful witnesses tell the world of the good news of Jesus Christ, even at the threat of death, Satan is being conquered. Michael and his angels are giving him a jolly good flogging. Let's move on. When the dragon was conquered, he was thrown down from heaven along with his demons. And when he sees that he's been beaten, he unleashes a great fury. He's a real spoil sport, this devil. He's, he's like a spoilt kid. There's, there's no gracious capitulation. He's like a spoilt kid who upends the monopoly board, ruining it for everybody else um, just because he's losing. Once Satan is thrown out of heaven, he knows that his time is short and he really gets going. He unleashes all of his fury. Who's his target? Well, first, he targets the church, the place where Christians gather, or probably more correctly, the gathered Christians. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Remember, the woman at this stage is representing the faithful church. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. It is only by a miracle of God many miracles of God, that the church has survived. In the Old Testament, being carried by God and eagle's wings are an image of God's miraculous pr protection and provision. The church always survives. God's faithful witnesses are never stamped out. The Sanhedrin weren't able to do it. Rome wasn't able to do it. The communist revolutions haven't been able to do it. The rise of Islam hasn't been able to do it. ISIS cannot do it. The secular media opposed to God won't be able to do it. Satan has not managed to stamp out the Christian church. And he never will. Why? Because God's faithful witnesses will never be stamped out because of God's miraculous provision and protection. You know, some people say to me, the church, that's a thing of the past. I don't need a church. I can just be a Christian at home with me and my family. No, no, no. The church is God's creation. 
The church is God's will that Christians would come together and be his people together. The church is God's will and it's his purpose. Who is the one who wants to do away with the church? Satan. Whereas God is protecting the church and holding us together. Does that tell you something about how important it is to be God's people meeting together? Verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Satan spews forth a flood of evil to try and destroy the church. Notice that it comes out of his mouth. We've been warned that at end times there will be false teachers, there will be false prophets, and we can see it happening in the church today. Whole denominations being hijacked by false teaching and ungodly principles. Who's behind it all? What's behind it? Satan. Satan is pouring forth a flood of evil to try and overcome the church. Verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now this is another one of those where I'm going to have to say, I don't know what this means. Um, I suspect that it's reminding us that God intervenes into the natural world to preserve his church. Just like when he swallowed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Um, in fact, it's, uh, it, Exodus chapter 15 sounds very similar to this. It says, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Talking about overcoming um, Pharaoh's army. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Well, if the devil couldn't defeat the church by false teaching and false prophets, if he couldn't defeat it with a flood of evil, the only thing left for him to do is to make war on individuals within that church. The only thing for him left to do is to make war on individuals who have stayed faithful to Jesus. We are about to enter into the section of Revelation where it's going to be revealed just how dreadful the persecution is going to be against God's faithful children. We've caught little glimpses of it so far, um, but we're going to see it more fully in the next section of Revelation that we come to. By the way, at this stage, I want you to notice how the disciples of Jesus are being described. They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's what it means to stay faithful. The overcomers are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus doesn't matter what age we live in, this has always been true. That There has always been a great temptation, a great pressure to compromise. And this is part of the flood of evil. To try and get us to feel that compromise just doesn't matter so much. Well, it does matter. We're not saved by doing good things, but we are saved 
to be obedient. Because we've been saved, we are now free to keep the commandments of God. But the thing is, some people will be very committed to not compromising, but the other thing we have to do is to hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Um, And once again, it doesn't matter what age we live in, there is always the great temptation, a great pressure to not hold to the testimony of Jesus. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. The testimony of Jesus is his life, it's his sacrifice on the cross, it's his commandments, it's his miracles, it's the gospel itself. What does it mean to be saved? It's that the testimony of Jesus is what we are talking about before, the blood of the Lamb and its purifying power. The testimony of Jesus has been passed down from the apostles and from generation to generation. It's recorded in the scriptures and somebody shared the testimony of Jesus with you. Probably a lot of people shared the testimony of Jesus with you. But that's the reason that you believe now. That's the reason why you're one of God's children now, is because somebody shared the testimony of Jesus with you. For us to hold on to that testimony of Jesus means to believe it, to live it, and to pass that testimony on. The gospel today is as new and as fresh as it ever was. And yet it continues to be the same old story. There's nothing new in the gospel. But the testimony is something that has to be shared. The Greek word for testimony is marturian, from which we get our word martyr. It is someone who bears witness. It is someone who testifies. If there's two things that the devil hates, it's when God's children live obedient, faithful lives to God and when they bear witness to Jesus Christ. Why does he hate that so much? Because that's how he's defeated. And his defeat is sure. Well, Revelation chapter 12 helps us to understand the spiritual battle especially the battle that lies behind the persecution of Christians. But I want you to understand, this is not written to scare us. In fact, it's written for quite exactly the opposite reason. It's written to give us confidence and hope. Because we've got the spoiler alert. Satan is defeated. Jesus is victorious. And we can overcome the evil one by standing strong in the faith. We can overcome the evil one because Jesus has already overcome the evil one. As history draws to a close, and as we see God's faithful children being persecuted, starved, killed, we can have every confidence to continue on as Jesus' faithful witnesses because the worst the devil can do is kill our bodies. That's the worst he can do. Kill our bodies, kill those that we love. Now I know that sounds very glib, but isn't it wonderful that that's the worst he can do? And just like Jesus, we'll only be dead for a little while. 
and then we'll be raised victorious. Next week we get into chapter 13 and chapter 13 is going to tell us how Satan is going to take it out, take his wrath and fury out on Christians. And it's going to be very sobering. But because we know that Satan's already lost, we can approach reading chapter 13 with, with a fair bit of confidence and faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, that, that we have the power to overcome, not through anything we've done, but through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony about the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, that you forgive us of all unrighteousness. We thank you that Satan, the accuser, is overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, that we stand before you holy and righteous. Lord, help us to recognise this in others of your children as well. And Lord, help us to be witnesses for you that despite the opposition that the world may throw at us, that we would testify to the good news of Jesus Christ in everything we do and everything we say. In Jesus' name, amen.